Gospel Church today. Uh, I know the outside is, uh, is a cold weather, and, um, but we're, we're still able to come. As long as we're able to come, we'll come and worship and hear the Word of God. Who's excited for God's Word this afternoon? Yes, we've got, Ms. We've got Milliket right here. She's excited. I'll get all of you from the back to come in, uh, and I'll get right into the message. Let me um, quickly share the title of today's sermon. Um, today we're going to be looking at the wealth of salvation, the wealth of salvation. Um, and if you were not here last week for our Easter service, we had an amazing time where we explored the, uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And in the story of Abraham and Isaac, we see the gospel that was preached to Abraham, as the New Testament says, the gospel that was shown that God will one day in the same mountain, he told his only son, <laughs> when God said that to, I, to Abraham, he was referring to the son of the promise. Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and Isaac. But last week we saw how Isaac was the promised son of Abraham. And he told him to take him up the same mountain that Jesus went up to sacrifice him there. But before Abraham went through it, he stopped him because God had a substitute. He had provided, and that's where Abraham called that mountain, the Lord will provide. So last week we had an amazing time. You can go on uh, YouTube and other platforms to, to follow that. But today we're going to continue that. This is part five of the Rags to Riches series that we've been on. Uh, I want us to pray. Let's quickly pray, get our thoughts together. Let's give our undivided attention to God and open our hearts to receive from Him today. Heavenly Father, we are here gathered as your children, gathered as people um, that are eager to hear your word, Lord. Lord, in our generation, we're, we're in the western part of this world, in the part of this world that we're living in, where you're pushed out more and more from society, from, from our schools, from the government. Oh God, I thank you that you have a remnant, that you have those that you've set apart, that you, those that you've set uh, aside, Lord, for your purposes and your glory. I thank you that you brought us in this land, Lord, to declare your gospel again to this nation. Lord, I pray that as we get into your word, that you would open our hearts, that you would speak your word into our hearts so that we can go and whatever we've learned today, that we can apply it in our lives. Bless the time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. In this series of rags to riches, we've been exploring one thing. The thing that we've been exploring is how Jesus became poor so that we can become rich. And we've already talked about the context of that and the rich, the rich or the wealth that Jesus came to give us is not what other people can give us. He's not talking about money, material possessions. What Jesus came down to the earth to fulfill and do for us are things that only God can do. And that is what we're exploring in this series of when we know the riches that we have in Jesus, every single person in this room, we've looked at how we are more wealthier than the billionaires and trillionaires of this world because we possess something that money cannot buy, amen? So that is what we've been exploring and today we're going to see the wealth of righteousness. 
You know, when you grow up in the church, especially from an early age, if you've grown up in the church, we throw words around and we just say things, amen, brother. You know, we say all of these things without really understanding behind them. And, and righteousness is one of those things. We've heard about it growing up in the church. We perhaps comprehended a little bit, but we don't fully understand it. And for myself, that was the case. It wasn't later on, even until I went to Bible college, I, I began to grapple with it and understand it. But now... Now, knowing this truth, I stand on this, knowing this is the wealth that Jesus has given me. Amen? So what is righteousness? Let's begin with a definition. Righteousness in the Hebrew is tzedek. Uh, okay, it's similar to the Amharic word tzaddik. But it has to do with what is straight as opposed to what is crooked. Righteousness uh, refers to which is right as opposed to which is wrong. So when we say someone is righteous, that means they are right in their behavior, in the, mor in the morals, uh, in their conduct, and the righteousness that God expects of human beings, we're going to learn about today compared to the righteousness we often expect from one another. But when, you, when we talk about righteousness, the Bible clearly sh shows us that God is righteous, Righteousness is not something that is outside of God that he possesses. Righteousness is who God is himself. The very natures of God, when you begin to study your Bible, you will know they are not forces that exist externally or apart from God, but these uh, natures are God himself. For example, the Bible tells us that God is love. So God doesn't possess love, he is love. In other words, the definition of love, in order to truly understand it and grasp it, we have to go to God. And in order to know righteousness, we have to go to the source, back to the source. And his righteousness is not separate from other natures that God has. For example, we know that God is holy. You know, when you do a study on the holiness of God, it is profound. But holiness is set apart. It's not just talking about the purity, um, the perfection, the excellence, and the b uh, brilliance of God. It talks about how when we say God is holy, He is separate from the rest of His creation. Now, I want you to understand this. Picture the circle that I'm drawing for you right now encompasses every creation, every created order of the universe, including the, all the planets, all of the galaxies, it's in within that circle. When we talk about the holiness of God, God is set apart from his creation. It's hard to comprehend. You know, when we see the stars and the moon, if you've seen a presentation of the galaxy, our solar system, you are in awe to see how small earth is. Not you, we are insignificant. The earth that we're living in, this vast uh, place, this place that we travel hours to go to the other side of the world, we see how small it is in the context of our solar system and our galaxy. Imagine the God that created the solar system and the galaxy. So when we talk about the holiness of God, it is his brilliance, his perfection, his purity, and how he set apart all of these things combined. So we know that God is holy, he's pure, he's his perfection, but we also know that God is just. So all of these natures of God have to work cohesively for us to truly understand what God did for us and what it means to be righteous. God is just. 
So this holy God who acts rightly, he acts right in everything that he does, we see that, uh, sorry, so this holy God who acts righteously, his righteousness is part of that holiness. So in Psalm, let's quickly go to two passages. Psalm 92 verse 15, this is what the psalmist said. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is the rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. There is no unrighteousness in God. That is the first point that we see. Uh, let's go to Psalm 145 verse 17. This is what the psalmist says here. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. Notice what the psalmist is saying here. Everything that the Lord does is right. Every thought, every deed that God does is right. And he's faithful in everything that he does. So when we say God is righteous, what we mean is that God never tells a lie. What we mean is that God never breaks a promise. What we mean that everything that God does is right and good. God will rightly deal with all things. So what I want to go to now is Job chapter 9 verse 2 because Job asks a question that is perhaps the most important question that anyone can ask. And this is what Job asked. He said, truly I know that this is so. And then he said this, but how can a man be in the right before God? This is the most important question that any single living creature, living person can ask. How can we be in the right standing before God? We're going to be exploring this now. And, and what Job asked is this question. This is what he grappled with through the conversation that he had with his friends. The first thing that gets in the way of us not being able to stand in the right before God is unrighteousness. So this is the first point we're going to explore. Unrighteousness or our ability not to be in the right before God is the first obstacle that makes us not stand in the right with him. And we know that in the beginning, because of the fall, because of what Adam and Eve did, sin came into the world. And from that day on, man does not stand holy or righteous before God. When we think of uh, people who are unrighteous, so we're, we're, the first thing that we're looking at is unrighteousness. When we think of people who are unrighteous, we often put a list in our minds. We think that the world will be a better place if pedophiles are removed from the world. We think that if murderers were, were removed from the world, this world will become a better place. We say, you know, what's wrong with society are the criminals, the thugs. <laughs> if you've lived in Melbourne long enough, you will see a list that the, that the media often portrays. We hear in our mainstream news channels how we, we have a thuggery problem in Melbourne. And in the comments section, we read nasty things that people are writing about certain things that people do. You know, these Africans need to be sent back to where they came from. They're the menace of society. They're the ones that are destroying what we have built in Australia. They're ungrateful. Send them back. And we see these horrible things that they often begin to write about these kind of things. We associate unrighteousness or wickedness as something that is with the other person. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 12, this is what Paul reminds us. He said this, 
What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what Paul is speaking of here, I'll come, I'll come in the context shortly. He's speaking of no one, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a Jewish person. A Gentile simply means a non-Jewish person which encompasses everyone else besides the Jewish people. The, the, the promised nation, besides them, encompasses everyone. Paul is making an argument in the book of Romans chapters 1 to chapter 3 that no one stands before God, before God, righteous. There is no one righteous before God. Church, we are only righteous before other people because we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the point, my friends. We all fall short of God's standard of righteousness. Not your person next to you, not society's standard of righteousness, not Australia's law standard of righteousness. We all fall short of the righteous decree of the laws of God. The question we really need to ask is how do we compare against Jesus? Not how do we compare against those we look down on. How do we compare against Jesus? Because Jesus was the only person that walked, walked on this earth but was perfectly righteous in everything he did and perfectly fulfilled all of the laws of God. You know, in the human courtroom, people are declared righteous or people are declared right on the basis of their good behavior. A person is declared innocent in the human court system until proven guilty. And the person accused is held against the standard of the law that they're living in, the land of the law, as the measuring rod. But before the sight of God, we are held up against His standard, which is the glory of God. This is what we often miss. We are held up against the standard of the perfect law of God. If we want to know what perfect righteousness looks like, we can look to Jesus. Our ability to perform righteously in everything that we do is measured against what Jesus did while he was on this earth. The only one that kept the entire law of God in action, in word, and in thought. Listen to me carefully. Because the standard of God is not just what we do, but even encompassing how we think or what we think. You know, human courtrooms can only investigate evidence based on what is investigated and what is found. Human courtrooms are limited in their investigation process with the invention of lie detectors now. They can, they can somehow see the body's reaction, the receptors in the body, they react in a certain way when someone is lying. When, when someone is nervous, the, the receptors in the brain and, and in, the, in the body that we have, they react in a certain way, and now they've come up with a system to know whether someone is lying or not. But before the sight of God, we all 
have fallen short. We are all unrighteous. You know, Pastor David Pawson, he's one of, uh, an amazing teacher, he's, he's, he's very old, but uh, he's one of the amazing teachers that I listen to. He talks about how he loves preaching in prisons where they are the most notorious criminals. He loves preaching there. He said the reason why he loves preaching in those places is because those people know that they are bad. So accepting the fact that they're unrighteous is not difficult for them. They already are condemned by society. They know they're guilty of the crimes they've committed. And he said, for me, I love going in the prison because they find it easy to accept the fact that I am an unrighteous person. I am a sinful person. Um, I remember once when I, I, I play soccer, I know some of you might be shocked. I'm actually pretty good. Siro uh, here plays with me. He can testify, but we're playing, and this was, I joined this club, this was one of my first weeks uh, in this particular club, um, and as we're playing, they put you, they group you together in threes, so you've got three people, three people, and then you, ha- you choose a number between yourselves, and then once you've allocated a number, you go, the captains select their number, and then you go to the number which you're, uh, you, you have. So this is like my first time there, and I don't know the, most of the people there, and one of the guys that was allocated with me, I had like, I knew my number, so I went to the number that I was allocated, and this other person in my group, he comes to the same team that I was in because he didn't like the other team. So there was this awkward moment where the coach stops and he's like, wait a minute, it's uneven, we're one person short, someone must have switched, and everyone is not saying anything. I know it's him because he was in my, in my particular group. So there was just this awkwardness and then he points the finger to me and he said, I think he is the one that switched teams. I swear to you, imagine, I am, he, this guy is a grown, grown man. I am shocked. I look at him and I'm like, me? And he said, yeah, yeah, I think he's the one. And I was just so upset, but I just shook my head. And this is my first time there. And I just went to the other team. I didn't care, but I, I looked and then the coach comes. He knows me. He's like, Jonathan, I, I never knew you were like this. And I said, I, I, I didn't do anything. Before I was saying something, before I, say, I kept going to defend myself, another person, um, the coach says, look, we'll resolve this dispute. And he asked the other third person that was in our group, he's fine, he doesn't know what's happening in, in this section, this part of the field. He calls out to him and he's like, who had this particular number? And he's like, Jonathan had that number. And the guy got embarrassed. And I, and, you know, I was justified before everyone there. But... You know, the feeling of being accused of something that you have not done is not pleasant. In that moment, when I was being accused of lying of something that I know I haven't done, and this person is pointing a finger at me, it was the most uncomfortable thing. You know, when you say to someone, especially when you're witnessing, you say to someone, you are a sinner and guilty of breaking the laws of God, people can think this. People can think, hey, wait a minute, you are accusing me of a guilt or a crime that I have not committed. I am not a bad person. What do you mean I am a sinner? I don't steal, I don't kill, I don't cheat. And people would make a list of the things that they consider bad or the things that people are in prison for. But when you show someone the righteous standards of God, their defense slowly crumbles down. I don't sleep around. What do you mean I am a sinner? 
Have you ever lusted over someone in your heart? Because that's the standard of God. What a minute, what are you talking about? I'm not a bad person. I've never killed anyone. You're accusing me of sin, a crime that I have not committed. Well, have you ever hated someone in your heart before? Because that's the standard the Bible says. Jesus himself said, if you hate a brother in your heart, it's as if you've murdered him. Who can live up to that standard? I don't cheat anyone. Well, have you ever told a lie in your life? Even the untrue thing that we call a small white lie, there's no such thing. It's either we're lying or telling the truth. Imagine if everything we ever did was recorded. Forget about the past of our life. Just yesterday, let me tell you the laws that I broke in Australia. As I was driving to the church building, I sped multiple times. There was time where I drove above the speed limit as I drove to Australia, um, as I drove to the church building. Now, in that moment, whether I did it knowingly or unknowingly, if there was a camera there, I would have been caught for the crime that I've done. <laughs> there was a time on my journey, I got really cold, and I took off my seatbelt at the red light, and I put a jacket on. Then my phone has a holder, so I put my phone there, but I don't know this law, I have to clarify it. But I, I used my phone as I was driving to call someone. That's, I'm pretty sure you can't do that. That's another law that I broke. I heard a preacher state that two out of three crimes people commit in the UK are not discovered. The people that are prosecuted and put away for the crimes they committed, one third of people of the population in the UK. People get away with it. And the things that I've just listed was yesterday and this was the standard of the Australian law. <laughs> but God, however, sees every thought, sees every word, sees every deed, and it is recorded. Everything that we think, say, and do is recorded in the book of God. This is the first thing that we must understand. We need to accept and believe that we are unrighteous according to the standards of God and not the standards of any human law. We live ungodly lives. We are unrighteous. We enjoy, matter of fact, we enjoy living unrighteously. There's pleasures in sin. The Bible talks about the pleasures of sin. If you're telling me that sin is not enjoyable, you're, when you're sinning, like you're forced to do something that you don't really want to do, you are lying. There is pleasure in sin. We love to sin. We enjoy being bad. You know, children, I find surprising. I have not encountered one parent. Let me know if you do. I have not encountered one parent. I have two of my own. I have not encountered one parent that have said, I have to teach my child to be bad. That comes naturally. They don't need a lesson on hitting someone or screaming or being selfish or being disobedient. That comes naturally. We often are parenting them and teaching children of what is right and what is good. You know, even when it comes to eating, isn't this interesting? Even when it comes to food, we hate what is good and we like what is not good for us. We raise our children, training them to like foods that are good for them. 
IU is, did an amazing job at that. When she, from a young age, she's taught our kids, these foods are good for you, and she has trained them to like it. But naturally, we like things that are not good for us. So we are all unrighteous. Point number two, self-righteousness. The second thing that gets in the way of us not being right before God is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is, a pla- is to place confidence in one's own righteousness. It is the idea that we can achieve the righteousness that God requires before the sight of God by the works that we have. That based on our performance, based on our works, we can be in the right before God. You know, Jesus shares a story to illustrate what self-righteousness looks like. Let's go to Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. To some, listen to what Jesus is sharing this parable for. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even looks at the tax collector like this fellow, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Next verse. I tell, you the tr- I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That's the key. Justified. How are we standing before God, friends? How are we standing before God? The Pharisee is respected and is considered religious person, highly respected before men. But before God, what God uh, considers someone that is justified is someone who has humbled themselves and recognized their inability to perform or to stand up to the standard righteous, the righteous standard of God. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Notice the difference in these two who came to talk to God. That's what prayer is. <laughs> the self-righteous Pharisee is confident in his ability to do certain works. And he also compares himself to the others he considers sinners. The saddest part of self-righteousness is the failure to see our own sinfulness. You know, the rare prayer that people who don't know they are guilty is to pray, Lord, have mercy on me. You only ask for mercy when you know you have done wrong or bad. No one who's confident in their ability, no one who's confident in in thinking that they don't need any saving, that they're a good person, no one is going to cry out for mercy who thinks in such a way. The tax collector He humbled himself. He acknowledged his sinfulness in the presence of God and he appealed to the mercy of God. His posture was knowing he doesn't deserve anything from God. You know, we are so entitled as human beings. God was righteous and just to wipe out humanity from Adam and Eve, but we see from the very beginning that God 
also provided a mechanism, a way for his mercy to cover the unrighteous acts of man. And payment had to be done. And we're going to come to that shortly and finish up soon. God is merciful. You know, self-righteousness is really pride. We see this in the, in, in the Pharisee. And pride and contempt, they go hand in hand. Contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is worthless or beneath consideration. You can't have a high view of yourself without having a low view of others. The Pharisees hated Jesus because they were too proud to say that they were sinners. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul speaks here in context of Peter's hypocrisy. He was hanging out with the Gentile believers and then when the Judaizers came, the, the people that, were, that are Jewish by birth, who are teaching false things that you, be, you have to believe in Jesus and also have circumcision and obey certain laws to be saved. Paul was afraid of not being included with them, so he left the Gentile believers to side with them, and Paul called him out for his hypocrisy. He said, we are not different than them, than the Gentiles. We are also saved by faith. Paul reminds us that a person is not declared righteous by works, but by trusting in Jesus. Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness surpasses the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. My friends, the greatest question you need to ask is, am I, am I going to live eternally with God? And Jesus is telling us, by living self-righteously, you will not enter the kingdom of God. By relying on your own ability to perform, to keep the laws of God, you will not enter the kingdom of God. He's saying your righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. We'll come to that soon. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. Listen to the revelation that Isaiah had in the Old Testament. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. All of us, our righteous acts are filthy before God. <laughs> Isaiah reminds us that nothing that we do will ever, will ever reach to the standard of God. Our good works are nothing compared to the good that God requires. The last point, God's righteousness. So we've looked at unrighteousness. We've looked at self-righteousness, the two things that hinder us from standing righteous before God. So what is, the, what is the solution? Right now, the message seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Yo-yo, you've told us that we're unrighteous. You've told us that we are self-righteous. If we have unrighteousness, we all have unrighteousness, but some of us have self-righteousness. We actually boast about our ability to perform. 
We're very religious. So you're telling me those two things make us not stand in the right. So what is the solution then? How is man made right before God? That's what Job asked. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. This is the good news, my friends. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is where the good news comes in, my friends. The good news is that the righteousness of God is revealed through Jesus Christ. And this righteousness of God is only received by faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul is saying this righteousness of God that came through Jesus is not new. <laughs> the prophets spoke about this time. Let's keep going. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, declared righteous, freely. Church, this is good news. Without cost, without money, the call of Isaiah 55, come to all of you who are thirsty. Freely. By His grace, undeserved favor that He bestows upon us. The redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So this righteousness that God wants to give us, the righteousness of God that we receive by faith only comes through Jesus Christ. That's how we're rich through him, my friends. Paul builds a case in Romans chapter one to three. He shows that the, both the Gentile and the non-Jews are all under sin. There is no one righteous. And now he reveals that apart from observance of the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And this is the righteousness that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Friends, you see, the righteousness of God that puts us in a right standing before God is given freely. The righteousness of God is given to a guilty sinner because Jesus' work on behalf of the sinner pays for that. You know, before I told you at the beginning that God is righteous, holy, and just. So, how can he bring someone who is guilty? How could a righteous, holy God who acts rightly, how can he bring the sinner back in a right standing with himself? God had to justly punish sin. So Jesus came down and lived the life that we cannot live by keeping the law perfectly. He then was hung on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, God made him, referring to Jesus, who had no sin, be sin for us, so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In theological terms, it's called the imputation of righteousness. It is when God takes the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and he credits it to the account of the non-righteous sinner. We give, in other words, this is the beautiful exchange. Are you come, come up for a second. 
This is the beautiful exchange. We give our sin over to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness comes over to us. God considers me righteous not because of the acts that I've done to earn righteousness, but because of the acts that Jesus has done to be righteous. Amen? So his righteousness is now credited to my account. God puts it into our account, our credit. The Bible says we're counted, we're reckoned, we're credited. These are all accounting terms. God, in other words, has balanced the books. If you've done any sort of finance, you know, to balance the book, your debt and liabilities has to be balanced with your revenue and your assets. (laughs) The assets and the revenue of Christ are transferred over to us and the debts and liabilities of us are transferred over to Jesus. Um, Emmanuel, I don't know if he's here today, he introduced me to credit score. Um, he's like, do you know your credit score? And I said, no, I don't know what my credit score is. I've never done it. He's like, oh, there's an app. You can quickly go on it and check your credit score. And, and I quickly went and I checked and I have a good credit score. And I never knew that I had a good credit score. But he explained to me that if you have debts and you have not paid debts, your credit score is bad. Church, that was our position. Our credit score was messed up. Because we had a lot of debts. We had a lot of liabilities that we owed to God. And nothing that we do, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of church attendance, no amount of prayers, no attempt to be in a right standing with God will, be, will suffice. So what God had to do is create a way where he can justly deal with sin. At the same time, he can redeem fallen human beings. And the way he did it is by him coming down and dying for us. Jesus came down. He took my place. He substituted for me, and his righteousness is now accredited to my account. You know, in the Old Testament, it's the same with the Lamb of God. When the Israelites would bring a lamb for the sin offering, they would lay their hands on the lamb, and their sins are transferred to the lamb, and the lamb is taken and slaughtered, and the blood is sprinkled before the mercy seat of God. And, and the innocence of the pure lamb, the one-year-old innocent lamb, that innocence, in figuratively speaking, is transferred to the believer. So by faith, in this seemingly foolish act, by faith, the Israelite sins are forgiven, are covered, atoned for because of the sacrifice of the lamb. But Jesus was the lamb of God who came to take the sin of the world. And he died in the place of you and me. This is justification. The sinner is declared righteous. The past is dealt with. The slate is cleaned. Before the sight of God, we are righteous. This is a gift of God that only comes through Jesus Christ. Thank you. you. Romans 4, 3 to 5. What does the scripture say? Abraham, in, in Genesis 15, this is back in Genesis 15, before the law came. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it wasn't the act that Abraham did by going to sacrifice his son that made him righteous. This was before that, my friends. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed in God. He believed in God and not because of his acts. And then verse 4, he went on to say this. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, 
their faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 10, 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, my heart desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. You know, if you know your Bible, this statement that the Israelites may be saved is controversial. Because for the Israelites, theirs is the covenant, theirs is the law, the Torah, theirs is the promise. And because the Israelites, because of circumcision and their obedience to the law, they consider themselves saved already. <laughs> so for Paul to say this is like, what? What are you saying, Paul? They're not saved. Let's keep going, verse 2. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that they may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So in other words, righteousness is a gift and not something that we work for. Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. Friends, on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner, though he was perfectly holy and pure, and we are treated as if we were righteous, though we are defiled and depraved. That's the cross. That's the good news. That's what Jesus came down to do for you and I. This is the wealth of righteousness that we have. We are declared righteous, not by the human courtroom, but by the courtroom of God. We are declared righteous on the basis of believing and not doing. So we're not proved innocent. We are declared innocent. We are declared innocent because the innocence that we have is not our innocence. It is the innocence that, that, that belongs to Jesus that God clothes us with. We will never be more righteous than we first believed because righteousness is a gift and not based on our performance. This will deliver some of you today. We become a Christian and we believe by faith and then we try to somehow be in the good books with God. Somehow be, be more accepted by God. You will never be more accepted than you first believed. You'll never be more righteous than you first believed. Why? Because righteousness is a gift. Now, we'll talk about applied righteousness another time. That's how God applies it in the real life and makes us conform into his image. Two more passages and I'm done. Isaiah 61.10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he arrayed me in the robe of of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels this is profound because in the old testament Isaiah the messianic prophet had this revelation that salvation is not earned but it is clothed it is God clothing clothing us it is God covering us you know when Adam and Eve sinned in the very beginning the bible says that they were naked and ashamed their eyes were open and they were naked and ashamed and God had to kill an animal. We don't know what animal, but I'm assuming it will be a lamb. But he had to kill an animal to clothe them. We see the gospel in the very beginning. And Isaiah tells us this is what salvation will be. It is God. Righteousness is this. It is a robe. It's looked at as a robe. God exchanges. He removes our filthy rags, our, our inability to perform, our inability to stand up to his perfection. He takes that off and he gives us the righteousness that is God's. I finish with this verse in my message today. Malikit, you can come up. 
I finish with this passage because this is so important in this series from, um, from rags to riches that we're talking about. Proverbs 11.4. This is what Proverbs 11.4 says. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Money cannot buy this right standing that we have as a gift before God. We may be able to get away with things on earth if we have enough money. That's why the wealthy get away with so much wrongdoing. That's why if you have enough money in the world court system, you can get away with a lot of crimes. You can pay your way out of things that you have. But the proverb, this writer of this proverb tells us wealth your riches, your, earth, your wealth, your earthly riches are useless in the day of wrath. In the day when God's wrath is going to be revealed and God is going to judge everything ultimately, that is useless. Your wealth is useless. But do you know what counts? Righteousness. What saves us in that final day when you cross over from this life to the next, what matters is have you clothed yourself with the righteousness of God? You know, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaks of that. He said, the kingdom of God is like a, a king who calls over for wedding banquets. And he calls, the, he's referring to the children of Israel. They're rejected. They don't want to come. So he says, go into the streets and get anyone. Get the good, get the bad, get anyone that is willing to come. They come and God provides for them clothing. <laughs> they have to wear the robe. This is the robe, the robe of righteousness. It's not belonging to them. It's, it's something that God gives them. And then he finds one person in there and he said, how are you in here? How are you in here without being dressed appropriately for this wedding banquet? And he said, put him out of this banquet and throw him where the gnashing of teeth in hell, in other words. Do you know what that shows us? How possible it is to be mixed in the church and not know him how to be doing ministry and not know him, how to be calling ourselves Christians and not knowing that righteousness is a gift and not a work. What will only declare us righteous is by being clothed with God's own righteousness and this is a gift, my friends. Close your eyes and let me pray for you. This is the gift that God has given anyone in this place. This is the wealth. This is the wealth that Jesus came to give us, my friends. You can't get this from, from anywhere else. The right standing. Job asked, how can a man be right before God? How can anyone be standing right before God? This was the question in the Old Testament. And the answer is by God giving us his own righteousness. This is good news, my friends. No more condemnation in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no more condemnation for he who is in Christ. Because before the sight of God, we are righteous. Because righteousness was given to us. I hope you understood today's message. I hope the Holy Spirit did a better job than I did and, and explained it more inside of your hearts and your minds so you can comprehend this. But I want to tell you that wealth, what you have, self-righteousness is useless. 
it's filthy before God. But when you like that tax collector, humble yourself. That's what Jesus said, that he went away justified before God. Because he humbled himself. He, had, he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, God. Have mercy on me. I am unrighteous. Have mercy on me, God. I have fallen short of your glory. Have mercy on me, God. I wonder if there's any heart in this place who's saying, God, have mercy on me. You're thinking that you have to perform certain things for God to accept you. That is the lie from the pit of hell. You don't have to perform for God to expect you, to accept you. You have to believe. Believe in what Jesus has done for you. And his work is credited on your behalf. God balanced the books of sin through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. If there's anyone in this place, I want you to just pray between you and your Savior. Just ask him. Humble yourself right now in this place. Humble yourself before, before God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've lived my life thinking that I am righteous. I've lived my life comparing myself to others. I lived my life, Lord, always looking, uh, being, being proud of myself because I'm better than some people that I compare myself with. But Lord, today I understand that comparing to your holy decree, comparing to your laws, comparing to your standard, I fell short. I fall short horribly, Lord. And I need mercy. I need you to give me this righteousness. If that's you, just ask him. Ask him. Right now, just talk to him and say, Heavenly Father, have mercy on me. Today I receive by faith. That's the only way that it's credited. It's by faith. It's by putting your full confidence and trust in this gift. By faith, trusting him. Lord, I put my trust, my confidence in you that you are able to deliver me from my sin. I thank you for the gift of righteousness, that you see me as right before your sight because I've trusted in Jesus' work. I've put my faith in that. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for what you're doing in this room. I thank you that you have helped us to grasp this truth in our hearts today, that we are only righteous before your sight, by faith. It's not a matter of doing, it's a matter of believing. God set us free from the lies of the enemy, set us free from, from works mentality, set us free, Lord, from thinking that we have to perform certain things in order for you to accept us. You only accept the humbled sinner that knows their need for the Savior. God, we thank you for your wealth of righteousness today, that we are able to stand before you righteous, that you declare us just like a courtroom dismisses a case, just like a courtroom declares someone innocent of wrongdoing in the higher court of God. He's declared us righteous because Jesus paid the fine. Jesus took our place. Isn't that good news, my friends? Can you just give him glory right now? Give him glory that you have, you have this gift of righteousness. Come on, give him more glory. 
Say, God, we thank you. God, I thank you that you've made me righteous, that you have taken my place, that you've taken my sin so that I can live in freedom. Church, this is the good news. This is the good news. This is the good news. Whenever you hear the enemy whisper his lies and condemnation, you declare, you declare that I am righteous and accepted by faith, by what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You know, this week I want you to just meditate on this truth. I want you to read upon it more. Read your Bible. Read your Bible and you'll see the thread that begins in Genesis throughout Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, you see that robe again, the robe of righteousness. That Jesus comes to redeem those who are clothed in white, those who are clothed in his righteousness. So no one can boast. When you read Romans chapter 4, he said, where is boasting? <laughs> it's excluded. No one can boast. No one can say, look what I have done. Look at my ability to do this. No one can boast because we are all guilty sinners forgiven by God. And Jesus' righteousness credited to our account. Doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've been through, it doesn't matter what sins you've done, you are able to repent today, to turn from that and put your trust in Jesus today. And he will receive you. Hallelujah. He will receive you. He will receive you. Praise God. He will receive you. God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your righteousness. Bless the rest of this day that we'll have today. And the week before us, cover us by your blood, Lord Jesus. Help us to practice righteousness. Help us to live righteously because we are righteous. And God, I thank you for what you've began in us. At the day of salvation, you'll finish it to completion. Lord, when we come and stand before you face to face, bless the rest of this week we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Church said, amen, amen. Thank you so much, guys. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Take care.